Well, good morning um, to all of you. Thank you for that wonderful um, exhortation, Jordan. Um, uh, I'm ready to go right now. <laughs> I wish I don't have to preach this. Because, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it is a joy to, to recognize that there is a certainty uh, in the hope that we have. There is um, a surety uh, that Christ is coming again and that all that was read about the tears being wiped away and no more sorrow and only joy and no more sickness and all of that is not a maybe, it's a definite. It is happening. And um, we, we prayed, um, uh, Lee led us in communion. Uh, we recognized that we are doing this till he comes. And there is a recognition that we have been saved for a point till he comes. And um, that's a, a good segue into what I'm speaking about today, which is thy kingdom come. And for um, you who know, uh, I've been in this series called What Christians Pursue, where we're trying to uh, understand the behaviors that characterize and, uh, and the behaviors and attitudes of true Christians. And uh, as part of uh, this, of what Christians pursue, we're saying Christians pursue prayer. Christians are people of prayer because Christ has commanded us to pray because Christ himself set the example by praying often. And so the last time we looked at Christ's model for prayer and we looked at the text from Matthew 6, 9 to 30 in which you would know as the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. And we saw that Jesus didn't intend for this prayer to be prayed by rote he didn't intend for it to be a formula, but he gave it to us as an outline, as a framework, because he said, he didn't say, pray this prayer. He said, pray this way. What did he ask us to pray? Let's look at the text. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to give a huge resounding amen to that. Amen. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I think um, there's just a certain amount of joy in just saying those words because it just echoes a reality that is unseen at the moment but will very soon be made visible. And my attempt at studying this text was by following an outline and can be summed up with these um, keywords. Pray with reverence, hallowed be thy name. Pray to relinquish, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Pray with reliance, give us this day our daily bread. Pray with repentance, forgive us our trespasses. We are to pray for refuge, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And lastly, but not the least, we come back full circle where we pray for God's reputation. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. We also asked three questions to make our study perhaps a bit more practical. We, we looked at what does this, what does the key word mean? What does it mean to pray with reverence or to pray with reliance or to pray to relinquish? What does this look like in my life? And lastly, how should this attitude inform the content of my prayer? Last time we only managed to get to the first verse to pray with reverence, hallowed be thy name. And this time I would like us to look at praying to relinquish. What does it mean to pray with reverence? The key insight is that Jesus is telling us that this is not simply a model for prayer, but this is a model for a lifestyle. It's not enough to just simply pray, hallowed be your name, if your, if your life is not hallowing, is not regarding as sacrosanct the name and character of God. So therefore, our life needs to be lived upholding the honor and reputation of God through the way we live. We summarize it like this. 
What does it mean to pray with reverence? It means to be concerned for God's glory. What does it look like? It looks like holy living. It looks like a concern for God's honor and his reputation. And how should this attitude inform the content of our prayer? We need to acknowledge his awesomeness and we need to pray that others would too. So having prayed now with reverence, having recognized that God is holy and that his name is worth much more than we can ask or think and having understood that we are the bearers of his name, we now move to praying with an attitude to relinquish. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I should let you know that our approach today won't be like a sermon but more like a Bible study where we want to understand the will of God. Now, mind you, this is going into very deep territory because we are going into the mind of God. It is not unknowable because God has revealed His mind to us through His Word. And so we can for sure know what God wants us to know about His will. And our goal will be to understand what the will of God is so that we can pray Thy will be done. We can't pray, thy will be done, if we don't know what his will is. So what do we uh, understand by the term will? We're going to spend about 80 to 90% of our time in this, uh, examining the the will of God, and then just for the last few minutes, 10%, I think, uh, we'll look at an application to the verse. It should become apparent as we go. What do we understand by the term will? The dictionary gives us several meanings. For example, uh, it refers to a wish or a desire. For example, to submit against one's will. It can also mean the power to choose or to control one's own action. For example, he has a strong will. And then there's the meaning of purpose or determination, which is to have the will to succeed. And so we can see that one word has several nuances which gives us different ideas of, of what just any will is. And what we can refer to when we talk about the word will. And so there are many nuances when we come to the will of God. And that's what I'd like us to consider. That there are lots, there are at least three nuances to the meaning of the phrase the will of God. And I'd also like us to consider the nature of the will of God. And now, I want you to understand that these two words, the the nuances and the nature, these these are not biblical phrases, these are my phrases, and if you don't like them, you can chuck them out, doesn't matter. But what, what, what matters is that we recognize the meaning of the biblical text, and we can agree on that. So, we want to consider the will of God, we want to consider the nuances that the will of God has, which gives us different shades of meaning. It's vital that we understand this because usually we just, you know, someone gets sick or someone has an accident, we say, oh, that's the will of God. Oh, really? I don't know. Did you know that? And so what do we mean when we say it's the will of God? And we can be very blasé and casual when we just throw this term around, the will of God. And so we want to understand that and we want to look at it in terms of the nature of God's will so that we can understand what God's will actually does and what he doesn't do. So first we want to look at the will of God and we want to look at the nuances and I believe that when the Bible talks about the will of God, it can either talk about God's will of purpose, it can talk about his will of command, or it can talk about his will of allowance. And I will show you scriptures that I believe supports these nuances. God's will of purpose, if you want to be clever, you can use the word decretive will. There's God's will of command, which is his preceptive will. And God's will of allowance, or his permissive will. Let's look at the first one. God's decretive will is what he has ordered by his divine authority. The word decretive comes from another word, decree. To proclaim, to say out loud. For example, but he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. So said Job, chapter 23, verse 13. 
Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Isaiah, 20, Isaiah 14. Isaiah 46, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. It's pretty dogmatic. Daniel 4.35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can say that to God. What have you done? What did you do? What were you thinking? And so it's very clear as to what the decretive will of God is, his will of purpose. And these passages give us two facts. Number one, God has made plans. We just sang about future plans today. We sang about them. And number two, they cannot be thwarted. We sang about that too, that we have an assurance that he is coming. And so when we look at God's plans, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. What he desires, that he does. We are coming to a non-negotiable side of God's will here. It's not about whether we accept it, whether we like it, whether we bring ourselves into alignment with it, whether we think it's right or wrong. This is going to happen. Now God's decretive will, we can know some of his decrees. He decreed for the earth, for the universe to be formed. He decreed for Christ to be a sacrifice for sin. He has decreed, like we sang, that he is going to come again and he is going to establish his kingdom. We know some of his decrees, but some of them we don't. And I think when we come to the, the decree of will of God, we should focus on what we know rather than indulge in unhelpful speculation. So the key points is, are that God has plans and he will achieve them regardless. Number two, we're looking at God's will of command or his preceptive will. It deals with God's precepts, his laws, his orders, his rules. God's will of command. And these deal with his rules for men. His rules for creation. God desires for us to be holy. God has given us ten commandments. God has given us his law. God has written his law on our hearts. They are commands. They are boundaries that he has set in place. And we all are very well aware of them. Can this will of God be dishonored? Absolutely. We do it on a daily basis. I don't have to prove to you that God's will of precept can be broken, can be thwarted, because we do it when we disobey. God created man perfect. He, he places him in the garden, has his everything you can eat except for the fruit of this tree. What does he do? He goes and eats it. So God has put a will in place, his will of command, but man breaks that. Through disobedience. And lastly, we have God's will of allowance or his permissive will. What he allows to happen. Now, we need to be clear that this is not his will of um, purpose. He hasn't decreed for this to happen. He hasn't commanded for this to happen. He just allows for it to happen. It is not his desire that this should happen, but he allows it nonetheless in his wisdom. Romans 1, 21 and 23, see if you can spot it. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God 
for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Did God say you are free to worship however you please? Did God say you can worship whomever you please? No. Man broke God's law. Therefore, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over. He allows them to persist in their unbelief. He allows them to persist and continue in their sin. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. It's God's will. Indirectly. He doesn't want it to happen, but he allows it to happen. The judgment of God, as we see here, therefore God gave them over. When God lets you be in your sin, be very afraid. God's judgment is he lets you be as you are. It's a scary thought. When God says, have it your way. It's not God's direct will for sin to happen, but he allows it to happen. Moreover, he allows for the consequences of, those, of that sin to flow on. Today we are dealing with the consequences of the sin that happened in the garden. We're still dealing with it. We die. We are sick. We sin because of that. So these are the three nuances that Scripture clearly teaches about the will of God. That his will of, we have his will of purpose or decree, his will of command or precept, and his will of allowance or permission. And we need to consider these nuances. They are not enough for us to understand God's will. We need to consider them in the light of the nature of his will. And when we talk about the nature of God's will, we are talking about the characteristics. What is God's will like? Um, if you ask someone, what is Peter Rufus's nature like? I'd like to know what you think. <laughs> but you're, you're trying to find a description, keywords, for someone's nature. And so when we come to a description of God's nature, the nature of God's will, we have a few keywords. These aren't all of them. It's not exhaustive, but they are sufficient, I think, for the purpose of our study this morning. And so when we say that God's will of decree or God's will of command or God's will of permission, all these keywords apply to the will of God. He is holy. He is just. He is wise. All these things. He is eternal. His will, his will is uncaused. And above all things, always, 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 His will is for His glory. Everything that He does, there is nothing that God does that is not linked to His glory. Everything that He does is for His glory. And so I want us to, to understand what these characteristics are. Because then when we understand God's will and we understand the nature of His will, then we could truly can say, your will be done. I want your will to be done. I will your will to be done. What does it mean that God's will is for His glory? It means that the only motivation that God has for His will, the only reason He does things, is for His glory. Hear the words of Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. For my own sake, and in case you didn't get it again, for my own sake, second time, I will act. For my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Paul puts it like this, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Note the words, intention. It is purposeful. And why did he do that? To the praise of the glory of his grace. 
Jeremiah 13.11 I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord. Why? That they might be for me a people for renown, for praise and for glory. John Piper calls this the centrality of God in his own affections. If you look down at the core of why God does what he does, you will find his glory. He is protective. He is jealous for his glory. And when you and I can pray, your will be done, he wants to share that glory with us. Piper says, God's ultimate goal is to uphold and display the glory of his name. If if, if scripture says that something is the will of God, you can rest assured. You can rest assured that that is for his glory. Next, what do we mean by God's will is sovereign? It means that his will is unquestioned. It means that he doesn't have to answer to anyone as to why he does what he does. He is unaccountable. Ephesians 1.11, his purpose works all things after the counsel of his will. He does what he does because he does it. And that's that. Isaiah 14.10, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Daniel 4.35, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Yes, God is a God of love. He is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. But that does not mean that he is answerable to us. His intimacy with us does not make him obligated to us. His friendship with us, his relationship with us, his tenderness towards us does not mean that he has to give us an answer. Read the book of Job, 40 chapters, questions, 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 no answer. Who is this that darkens my counsel? It's not a problem to ask the questions, but God is not beholden to give us an answer. What else? God is holy. He is completely and utterly other, unlike, peerless, unique, exclusive. He is unlike any other. We know this already. Revelation 15.4 Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Why? For you alone are holy. First Samuel 2.2 There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you. He is unique. There is no one like him. None. And so when we, when we talk about the will of God, we have to realize that His will is unique. His will is just like Him. Moving on, the will of God is wise and just. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depth. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Oh, the depth. When things, when you're thinking, you're trying to figure out God's will, don't always think that you can figure it out. I mean, it's it's good to try. But his depth, his will has depths that will always be unfathomable. We, I think we've reached, as, as, as human beings, we've reached possibly the bottom of the ocean, or we think we've found the deepest part of the ocean. I think it's the Mariana Trench. I don't know if there's any other part deeper than that. But hopefully with technology, we'll find, we perhaps will or can expect to find the deepest part in the ocean. But no amount of technology, no amount of understanding will get us to understand or get us to grasp underneath the wisdom of God. We should just accept that. Deuteronomy 32.3 Ascribe greatness to our God. Why should we do that? Why should you ascribe greatness to God? The rock 
Because his work is perfect. Because all his ways are just. He is a God of faithfulness and there is no injustice in him. Good and upright is he. No injustice. No injustice ever. God is wise and just, meaning everything he does according to his will is prudent and well informed. He is just means he is reasonable, he is fair, he is equitable. If there's anyone who's fair, it's God. And sometimes we can question the fairness. Is this right? Is this fair? Believe me, you don't want fair from God. His will is also eternal and uncaused. And what do I mean by uncaused? Eternal means without time. It's not, it's not restricted by the limitations of time. It's outside of time. It doesn't happen in time. It happens before time even began. What does that look like? I have no idea. I am a creature bound by time. God is not a creature, first of all. He is eternal. He is unchanging. He is uncreated, ever existing. I am that I am. What sort of an answer is that, Lord? What sort of a name is that? I am that I am. I am uncaused. I am untouchable. I, I was never created. No one made me. I am who I am. To say that God's will is uncaused is to say that nothing forces him to make a decision. He is not reacting. God is not, oops, didn't see that one. There is no Responding to things. He knows. And so he's not responding to situations like we do. Like he's not trying to cling on to this runaway train. He has made his plans outside of time and he uses this dimension of time to fulfill and bring his plans to existence. Isaiah 44, 6-8 Thus says the Lord and the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Who can say that? Who can say that? We had a big drama for two years for a president in America. He's not going to be there perhaps in two, four years or he's definitely not going to be there in eight. And the whole world gets up in a tizzy. But here you have the Lord God saying, I am the first and I am the last. And there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Show me. Tell me. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? The will of God is no reason to be afraid. Because you know it for a certainty. You can bank on it. The will of God, to use a colloquial term, is as safe as houses. Don't let the property bush, bus boom happen or bust, but the will of God is safe. Everything that happens in time is either because God has purposed it to happen or because he has commanded for it to happen or because he allows it to happen. And therefore everything that happens in time we can say is the will of God. Now, this raises several tricky questions as you may well know. And I want to address them as best as I can because I want you to have the confidence that you can bank on the will of God for your life. Because when storms come, when uncertainty hits, when questions and doubts arise, this is unchangeable. This does not change. You stand on the rock. 
Not because you have power. Not because your leg muscles are somehow equipped. You stand on the rock because it is immovable. That is the surety. That is why we sing. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. But very often, we don't have this surety because when we say everything is God's will, and then someone will come up to you and say, hmm, if everything is God's will, then, and you'll get a controversial sort of question, which sort of either makes God look like a tyrant or some sort of loser, and you don't know how to react because you don't want to compromise God's character, and so you're saying, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Let's be confident about the will of God. Because if if God is someone who is just figuring things out as He goes, He's not worthy of worship. If God is somehow reacting to scenarios, He is not worthy of worship. Because that's just like us. I want you to rejoice in the will of God. I want you to take pride in the will of God. I want you to celebrate the will of God. Because then you can say, Thy will be done. And you can say it honestly. And you can say it because you have a passion for His will. What did Jesus say? My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. Is God's will your sustenance? Is God's will something that you crave for? Because without it, you will die. So what are these questions? I I want us to answer these questions within the framework of the will of God so that we can be confident that our God is a great God and He is worthy of everything that we can do, of all the praise that we can give Him. So what are these these questions that challenge the will of God, and I believe that they can be summed up into three categories. They can be summed up under sin, challenges regarding sin. They can be summed up under challenges regarding uh, salvation. And they can be summed up as challenges regarding suffering. And I want you to understand this because suffering and sin and salvation, they are key areas of our lives as believers. And how are we going to address them? Here's question number one. If everything happens to God's will, according to God's will, and everything includes sin, does God cause sin? You've heard that question before. And the answer is no, because we are very clear that the nature of God's will is that it is holy. So whatever God does, whatever He allows, whatever He commands, it is holy. And therefore God does not allow or create sin or evil. The next question will come, if God has willed everything and everything includes the actions of men, then is God responsible for the sinful actions of men? Answer, no. Not in a direct sense. Because we said that in God's decree, He does not will for people to sin. God did not want Adam to sin. But He allowed it. And so here we are faced with a tremendous dilemma as to if God is creating everything for good, if He is creating everything perfect, why would He allow it to fall to pieces? Is He not powerful enough? Does He not know enough? We come back to that overarching motivation for everything that God does. His glory. Ephesians 2, 6, 7 And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why did He do that? In order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace 
expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God allows sin to happen. So then Christ can be a sacrifice for sin. And then he can seat us in the heavenlies with him and be glorified. 1 Peter 1, 20, 21. He was chosen when? Before the creation of the world. Not as a reaction to Adam. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. It's hard to accept. Why would a wise God allow sin to happen? And the answer is, for His glory. God does not will sin. He does not create sin. He does not force man to sin. And yet He allows man to sin. He allows man to wallow in the consequences of that sin. And then He picks him up. So that He can recognize the beauty and the holiness and the awesomeness of this God. And then He glorifies himself through that. This brings us to the next question that is often used to challenge the will of God and it is the question of suffering. And I'm sure that it will be close to everyone's heart because I know for a fact that each one of us is dealing with stuff in our lives. Life is not smooth for any one of us sitting down here. And I want to encourage you, because if you know the will of God and how it pertains to human suffering, I believe that is the most liberating, assuring, comforting reality that you could ask for. If God does everything according to His will and everything includes human suffering, then is it God's will for us to suffer? Does God get some pleasure out of our pain? Is He some sort of sadist? Consider the story of Joseph with me for a second. He summarizes it in a beautiful yet profound statement which he tells his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. How does that even work? How can God take sibling jealousy and then sibling jealousy to the extent that someone is chucked into a pit and then sold into slavery and then he becomes... A, a servant in, in some Egyptian official's house and he gains favor with that official and then he is accused of perhaps raping or trying to rape that official's wife. He's chucked into prison and then he becomes second in command in Egypt. And then, and then he, he's there using his brains that God has given him to sort of, and the vision that God has given him to prepare Egypt for seven years of famine. And because he has prepared this, and because this seven years of famine, there's lots of food, his brothers come there asking for food. And his brothers come there and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Because now the people of Abraham can come into this land and flourish. And from one seed, God fulfills his promise to Abraham, I will make you a nation of many thousands, and like the sands of the sea. Israel is born. God's redemptive plan is underway. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. How does that work? Let me try and attempt an answer. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, and here's the key phrase, to those who are called 
according to his purpose. Do you see God's will there? If God has called you by his sovereign calling, then whatever happens to you, the worst evil, I'm not saying you sin, I'm not saying you're doing something intentionally wrong, but you're living as you, best you can, and stuff happens to you, if God has called you, He will work that evil for good. Why does He do that? What's His reason? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. If God has already determined that He wants to conform you to the image of His Son, then no matter what evil will happen to you, He will use it for good. Whether it's cancer, whether it's poverty, whether it's a motor accident, whether it's family breakup, whether it is sexual abuse, whether it is character assassination, whatever might happen, if God has chosen you, He will work the evil that other people do to you for good. Cancer is not God's will. It's not a, it's not a consequence of His... God did not make cancer. He says, oh, here's a great thing. It's a result. He allowed it to happen. It's a result of the fall. But in his sovereignty, he allows things to happen and he works them for good. And here's the best part. What then? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You want to pray with power? You want to pray and let the heavens come down? You pray not because you have power, but because the power of God is under you. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Who's going to do that? This is why we pray, Thy will be done. Because He causes all things to work together for good to those whom He has called according to His purpose. This brings us to the last challenge that people often throw at the will of God, and it's the challenge of salvation. If everything happens according to God's will, and everything includes the fact that people are going to hell, does that mean that God is sending people to hell? Is God actively nominating... You, Sorry. How do we answer that? It's a hard question, I know. I know many of us struggle with that. How can a good God send people to hell? And if everything happens according to His will, then is He actually picking people and predestining them to hell? He would be a very unfair God if He did that. Will He? Will God be unfair if He sends us to hell? Let's be very clear. God doesn't have to choose us to go to hell. We are on our way to hell anyway. Being born into sin, being in bondage to the flesh, that is our only destiny. We are on a highway speeding towards eternal condemnation. 
God doesn't have to choose us to do that. That is where we're headed. But Second Peter 3.9 has a wonderful answer. God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It is not God's direct will for Him to mete out justice to you and to destroy you. He wants you to repent. He wants, it says there, God is wishing not for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There is opportunity for rescue. So why don't people come to repentance? Romans 8, 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mind that is set on the flesh does not subject itself to God, and it cannot, does not, cannot. There is bondage here. There is slavery here. Man is not free to do as he pleases. Man is only free to do as his sinful flesh pleases. When sin is your master, you cannot and you will not comply with the law of God. Jesus says it quite sharply in John 3.19. Men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why would they do that? Augustine, the early church father, puts it like this. Without the spirit, man's will is not free since it has been laid under by shackling and conquering desires. Jesus says that in John 5.40, you are unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. Don't pretend that you want to come to me. You don't. I have life. I'm here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But you will not come to me. There's no freedom in in, in man's will here because the will is a slave to sin. So now let's go back to that question. Is, Is God unfair? No, he's not. He doesn't have to choose anyone for hell. That's where we are. That's where we're going anyway. If there's any choosing to be done, it is to save us. It is to stop us. It is, it is to wade into that river that is carrying us along with this current and pluck us out. If there is any selection to be done, it is to change the direction of our destiny. That is why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Let me quote Augustine to you again. To will is of nature, but to will a right is of grace. To will is of nature, but to will aright is of grace. And you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, what? Children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Man can will all he wants, but if he is to will aright, it must be a work of grace. Grace is available because the justice of God fell on Christ. 
He gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present age according to the will of God. Christ died because it was God's will. Your salvation has nothing to do with your will and everything to do with the will of God. It is a humbling reality. But it is a blessed reality. Is it God's will for you to be saved? 1 Timothy 2.4 God our, our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Do you believe that? Here's another ray of hope. Romans 10.13 Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Only question is, are you going to respond? Does God send people to hell? Does he predestine them to hell? No. No. People go to hell because they choose to remain in their bondage to sin. Because they love the darkness more than light. And now we just want to come to our passage briefly. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Knowing all that we know now of God's will. How do we pray this? What does this mean for us? Where will the kingdom come? On earth. How does it come on earth? When he transforms our hearts. When he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's when he comes. And so Jesus is teaching us this prayer. That this prayer is a prayer. It's a gospel prayer. It is to pray for God, for people to be converted. It is to pray for hearts, for stubborn hearts, for people who are heading down the highway to hell. It is to pray for God's will to be done in their lives. That they would turn. And we can pray this with, with assurance that God wants us to pray this. It is God's will that people repent. And so when you pray this, you are praying in alignment with God's will. Someone might say, if God's going to do what He's going to do, if He is sovereign in His will, if everything that happens happen, happens because He wants it to happen, then why should I pray? If God's going to do what He's going to do, why should I pray? And the answer is, the purpose of prayer is not to change God's mind. The purpose of prayer is to change your mind. We don't come to prayer to somehow impress upon God our need and our plans and our agenda. We come, we spend hours because we want Him to impress His agenda on us. Why are you praying? Why do you pray? What are you praying? I'm not saying it's wrong to ask God for things. I'm not saying that. But we pray according to His will. If it be your will. What is Christ saying in the garden? Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, not my will. But God's be done. And so, if we want to pursue the model of Christ in prayer, we want to pray to relinquish. Lord, you know best. It relinquishes your intellect. Lord, I want what you want. Relinquish your desires. Lord, where you lead me, there I will go. You relinquish your entire future. When I was growing up, I heard of people, you know, saying, Oh, you know, such and such is a prayer warrior was almost as if, you know, some people had the special power that they could, you know, get from God what you couldn't. And so you go to them and you ask them to pray for you. That's not prayer. That's not prayer. We want to be spending hours so that God can change us. 
and so that His will can be done in us. And I, and I just want to leave this with you. The question isn't if God is sovereign, why pray? The question is, if God isn't sovereign, what's the point? Why would you go to a God and pray if He's not sovereign? Come, let us pray now to a God who can't really do anything. What's the point of that? We pray because God is sovereign. And He's not sovereign just because He knows things, because He has ordered all things. That is why He is able. We storm heaven because we know that God can do something. And He can do it because He has willed it. When you stand, when you stand on the will of God, there is no firmer foundation. Come storm, come trial, come struggle, you will stand. Not because... You're strong, but because the rock underneath you is immovable. So let's try and make this a little more practical for ourselves. What does it mean to pray to relinquish? It means that the purpose of prayer is to align ourselves to the eternal will of God. Lord, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. You are just saying, Lord, let your will, which you have ordained before time began, let man not come in between. Let governments not come in between. Let not political leaders come in between. Let not community leaders come in between. Let your will be done. Because you are a holy God and you want your people to be holy. What does this look like? It looks like total confidence that God knows what is best for your life. Regardless of the circumstance. Are you praying with confidence? Are you praying with resignation? Ah, yeah, whatever, let Are you praying in anger? Res- you know, I know you're going to do what you're going to do, but is there joy when you pray your will be done? How should this attitude of relinquishment inform the content of my prayer? Let's do what we were doing today. Lord, come. Are you praying for the Lord to come? I'm serious. Are you praying? Is that, does that form your prayer? Lord, come. Sometimes I feel that there is perhaps so much unwanted sin and, 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 and hidden sin in our lives that we, oh man, if he comes now, gosh. Oh. Pray for the return. Are you desperate for the kingdom of God to come here on earth? Are you desperate for his government? Are you desperate for his administration? Are you desperate for his reign? Because if you are, then you will pray. You will spend time on your knees. You will say, Lord, thy will be done. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, we we know that you are awesome and mighty. And Lord, we know that you are able to do more than we can ask for. And so, Father, we come with prayers that are weak. Father, because we do not know what to ask for. And so we ask according to your will. And your will, Lord, is revealed to us in your word. And so we ask according to your word. Let your kingdom come. 
And Father, we pray that this would be true in our lives where your kingdom is reigning in us. Father, let your kingdom reign in us before we can seek for it to reign elsewhere. And we pray, Lord, that as you have called us, that you would continue to transform us and conform us to the image of your Son. Because it is his glory that we seek. It is his kingdom that we seek. And it is his reign, Lord, that we await. And so we pray, come, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would come quickly. We ask all this in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.